Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman, and this is the fifth of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. Good morning, David, and welcome to another episode. Um, We're going to be talking today about the creation of Blind Citizens Australia, and I was just wondering, perhaps you could start by explaining what is it and why is it important? Blind Citizens Australia is the national organisation of blind people in Australia. It represents everybody and no one is denied membership. It started out of the frustrations of um, not having representation for all. It has had several names in its time. It started off as the National Federation of Blind Citizens. When it became incorporated, it became the National Federation of Blind Citizens of Australia. And then several years ago, the name was shortened to Blind Citizens Australia. And we commonly refer to it as BCA. Alrighty. So um, perhaps you could explain... Why is it important that there is a national representative body speaking on behalf of the interests of um, people who are blind or vision impaired? Most of the issues that really affect blind people are state-based, but there are a number of issues that are federally funded through the states, and it is important that a national organisation can represent people at the federal level. Australia is a a country that's made up of a federation and each of the states have particular responsibilities. But the main funding arrangements for Australia come through the federal government and they dispense funds according to policies they create and the states have to implement those policies in a way that suits their style. So it is important that Nationally, we can have a voice at the federal level. We can talk to the federal politicians, but more importantly, the federal public servants, um, that when new programs have been been developed, that we ensure that blind people are adequately represented in those programs because it became obvious to us that there was a very strong movement in Australia against single disability, such as blindness or paraplegia, and um, the governments and the public were more thinking of multi-disability, the attitude that all people with disabilities had the same needs, and that wasn't a, a position that Blind Citizens Australia held. 
So perhaps, David, you could set the scene for us. Uh, when is it when BCA was getting an initially up and running? And what was happening in Australia at that time? Well, originally, uh, we mentioned earlier, the organisations in Australia were all mostly unions and uh, they were federated in an organisation which eventually became Australian Blind Citizens. Um, this organisation had restricted membership because you had to be working in a factory or wherever to be a member of those unions. Several of us felt that it was important, and I in particular were probably one of the main advocates for this, having my history of having lived in most parts of Australia, that there was a need for an organisation that represented people just as equally whether they came from Broome or they came from Melbourne. And uh, that's why we worked in that way. We had a, a period where we had I had no involvement and this was probably over a period of about five or six years because I was disillusioned with the previous system. So in conjunction with um, several other people, particularly the late Hugh Jeffries, we, um, we actually talked it up and eventually decided that there was a need for a change. Now, Actually, this David, I might stop you before we get into the nuts and bolts. Mm. The We're talking about the 70s, aren't we? We're yeah, talking well, about no. the Whitlam mm. era. We're talking about a time of significant social change. Yeah. I was wondering, if can you set that for us? Yes, uh, the Whitlam era, actually it goes back a little bit further. I think um, there was a time in Australia where we plateaued out and uh, things were pretty good. And then they went too bad. It went bad. But eventually, Gough Whitlam was elected Prime Minister of Australia, and this was a major change. We were going through the turmoil of the Vietnam War. Whitlam solved that problem, uh, and uh, then he brought in more equal rights for people with uh, disabilities, people who were women, people who uh, had other needs. He took a, a grand view that everybody was entitled to a fair piece of the cake. Some of the things he did, uh, or his government did, uh, are still having ramifications today. But the thing that he did instill in all of us was that if we wanted to do something, we had to get off our butt and do it ourselves. And that's what uh, actually started the movement that eventually became BCA. Thank you, David. So. You started to talk about your discussions with Hugh Jeffries. Perhaps um, you can come back to that. Yes, um, we were having discussions about what was the best way, but you know we had no money, we had no organisation. Uh, and then a group of people in Sydney uh, decided that um, they were going to set up a national organisation for blind people. They were very radical in the fact that they were quite aggressive uh, and uh, about attitudes and uh, things. But their so main when you say attitude, you mean about the attitudes of people towards blind people? Well, the attitudes of people who thought differently to them um, mainly. Uh, they they were really playing a a role of um, being able to complain bitterly about things and uh, not really do anything about it. That was the way we saw it. And when they came to Melbourne, we were interested. Uh, we had a meeting with them. We had a public meeting with them, actually. There was probably about 30 or 40 people there. Uh, 
But the thing that became quite evident to us was that they weren't really interested in what we wanted. They were only interested in what they saw as the important things. And to illustrate that, they made it very clear to us that if we didn't fit into their ideas, they wouldn't be allowed to join their organisation. And so, one, again, one, we have a an exclusive membership attitude. Yes, this was the real issue, and that was the thing that uh, balked with us. That uh, We said, unless you had open membership, we weren't interested. Well, they said, we're, we're, not, we're going to go ahead and we're going to be the national body, and if you don't want to do it, do it our way, you can't do it. So when they went, we uh, had a talk about it, and... Uh, we got some young people involved then, like the Bill Jolly, uh, uh, John Masham, uh, a number of other young people, and uh, we had a meeting in the March where we decided that we would set up a national organisation and the main criteria to be a member was that you had to be what was then called legally blind and uh, so long as you were blind you could be a member no matter where you lived or who you were that was your right we had that meeting we decided we'd do that uh, when we, when was that meeting in 19, David? march 1975 right and then in queen's birthday weekend which was june 1975 we had a meeting at kuyong where we adopted a constitution i was elected the first president Bill Jolly was the secretary, Phyllis Gratian was the treasurer, Hugh Jeffries was on the committee, and a number of other people were also there. Was the presidency contested, or was it seen because of your leading role in establishing the organisation that you were the natural person to take the position? Well, it was contested, but um, the opposition person received one vote. <laughs> Can you remember who stood against you? Yes, the late Phyllis Gratian. Phyllis. Oh, mm. Good for her. It's better to have uh, yeah, yeah. a contested position. It's better to have a vote. It shows the energy behind the group. It was. It was. Um, it it was one of those issues that happened, and uh, it didn't create any problems for us. Um, we were all still on the same page. Uh, it wasn't as though there was a national campaign of who should be the leader. No. I hope. I hope Phyllis's vote was her vote. I hope she um, she voted for herself. Well, we we can only assume. That. <laughs> <laughs> the um, um, the creation of that constitution, that that obviously would have been very close to your heart because that's very central to this issue of open membership of um, it being uh, equal participation across all the states. It that really is your moment to put all these ideas into practice. That's correct, and that was the the whole um, uh, idea as far as I was concerned, that I was, had the belief that if we had the organisation, I was sure the people would come up with the policies and the, the way to overcome these problems. To me, the state boundaries were an absolute anathema. I, I, I really had problems with them. Uh, I still have trouble with Federation as a, a matter of interest. Um, I believe we are one nation, and we're, when, uh, as far as blind people are concerned, there weren't that many of us, so we couldn't afford to be separate and disparate. We had to be as one. And to a certain extent, that has happened today. And within BCA, it, there were conflicting views. There were at that time. Uh, you know, there were people who had been educated in a, in a certain way and they had their beliefs. Uh, 
but I was one of those people that I was lucky. I came from the outside. I really had no state affiliations. Um, I, I virtually was seen as from the Northern Territory, so and I'd come to live in Victoria after living in Queensland and had medical attention in South Australia. So to me, I, I couldn't see why there had to be a difference in each of the states, and I couldn't see why those state boundaries should affect us the way they were, and 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 still do to a certain extent. So you mentioned there's not that many of you. Now, I actually, I imagine amongst those people who are legally blind, those that are actually prepared to be active, prepared to make a stand, prepared to speak out publicly, it's, it's never that many amongst any group. What sort of numbers are we talking about? That, um, that initial meeting that got this all going, how many were there? I can't remember the exact number, but it was probably somewhere around about 30, 30 maybe 35 at the most. That's, that's still a fairly good level of interest. So, And because it was held in Victoria, I presume. Yes. So was it primarily Victorians or did you get people down from the other states? We got several people down from New South Wales. So, interestingly, they, they weren't the leaders in New South Wales that came. Uh, they were individual people. Uh, we put two of them on the original committee, actually, and uh, they uh, they worked in New South Wales for us. After we established uh, B- BCA, we'll call it BCA, um, we then went and tried to influence the other states, and we had varying degrees of success. Well, I imagine New South Wales, that original group you talked about, they would have been going nuts because you were riding straight over their turf? Well, there were two issues in New South Wales which were a major problem to us. Um, one, they had a, a, a statewide organisation uh, which was in favour of the previous national body, the Australian Federation of Blind Citizens, um, and they had they were the host for the executive of that organisation. So we were in direct opposition to them. Uh, because, as I mentioned before, twice we'd tried to move for open membership of that organisation and were defeated each time. So when we went to New South Wales, we went to a completely different group. We we went to, the first lot we went to see were a young group. We went up on the train, I think there was Bill Jolly, Phyllis Grayson, maybe one or two others, and myself. and. Uh, because of the young ones, they had, and through cricket, they knew of some of the younger people up there. So we went up there, and the day we arrived on the train, one of our sighted guides picked up a newspaper, and he was this big advertisement for the Royal Blind Society about Tom, who was blind, who was shunned by his community and despised and really terrible. And he went and got trained by the RBS to use a long cane and all of a sudden his community changed and he's now well-loved and as a valued member of his community. And we were sickened by this and we were angry actually that this sort of garbage was still being used to raise money by David, an agency. can I ask you just for people who aren't really familiar with the uh, previous perceptions that agencies were promoting of um, blind people as being helpless or in need of uh, significant assistance to make something of their lives. Perhaps you could explain a little bit about that, how the agencies raised their money 
and what that did to the to the lives of people who were blind? Well, I believe that it belittled blind people. It um, showed them as being of less value than anybody else in the community. They were receivers, not contributors. Um, and all these things were done in their name without them having any say about it. The, the change that we wanted and we were pushing for was that blind people had to be seen as people first and that the agencies were there to assist blind people to give them the tools that they could use to make something of their lives. Now some people wanted to work in a sheltered workshop, other people wanted to do other sort of work, other people wanted to have a higher education. All these issues were their natural aspiration of any person and we believe that blind people were equally entitled to that right and these organisations that were raising money in their name, their responsibility was to facilitate that by giving them the tools and the, the methods in which they could achieve their objectives. That was our belief. We believe that they should have been much more positive in their advertising. Like things like the gift of sight was one of the slogans which I objected to at the time, uh, that people they were going to raise money saying they were giving the gift of sight. They weren't giving the gift of sight to anybody. What they were doing was giving the gift of independence. Yes, that was a different issue, and, and I, I wouldn't argue with that. But to say that you're going to give the gift of sight or that you stop the community from uh, disliking a person because they, they didn't have the ability to move up and down the street was just absolute garbage, and it was sick uh, stuff, and it was easy money. And, and I believe eventually it turned against the agencies. In you, those that were using that sort of publicity were the ones who started to suffer in the end because the public became aware that blind people weren't weren't just objects of pity. Because uh, it, it's a condition that most people feared, but they didn't have to fear the person. It was the disability they fe had to fear. And so... Uh, it wasn't the person who was blind they feared, it was the fact that they may become blind because they were unaware that you still had a, a good life in front of you if you want to use it. So, David, I'll take you back to New South Wales. Mm -hmm. You've just seen a, a, a full-page ad uh, that's patronising, demeaning of people who are blind and... Uh, also self-serving for the uh, fundraising interests of that organisation. So that wasn't a great start. Perhaps um, perhaps you can pick up from there. Yes, well, we got off the train in Sydney and uh, we had arranged with several meetings with different groups and one of them was a, a group of young students, all university students, and uh, we raised this issue and the comment was made uh, by one of them and uh, Graham Innes it was, as a matter of fact, and Graham really accept this even today his comment was well I don't care how they raise the money so long as they have enough to produce my books in braille uh, Graham now has a totally different view to that but that was the thinking at the time and that wasn't in, in any way degrading of him but that's how people were educated to think and the students were at that time were being made to feel that they were beholden to the agency because they couldn't receive their information any other way. And unfortunately, some people use that power to more or less guide people's thinking. However, we do, you think, do you think there's an issue, or there was an issue then, that 
to question that conduct was to be ungrateful it was biting the hand that fed you oh very much so and uh, that was the issue that uh, was strong there it's interesting that graham in a very short period of time after that changed his views to such an extent that he became a very highly valued member of blind citizens australia was a vice president for a number of years and is still a strong active and advocate for the organization oh that's a fantastic story well, that's the sort of things that BCA did do. It it gave blind and vision impaired people the opportunity to grow and to to, to have a, a a forum in which they could express their real feelings and be in company of, of people of self uh, worth, self th- ideas, and uh, and we didn't always agree. I mean, uh, quite frankly, many of our meetings were quite heated and. Uh, our early conventions were, um, were were chaos at times. I mean, we had we had many discussions on many issues, and uh, they were passionate discussions. But at the end of the day, we were all on the same page. We knew where we were trying to go, and uh, we were going to get there. Our early first convention really set the tone for the organisation because two of the resolutions that were passed there. One was the issue of audible traffic signals. The original concept was to have an audible signal to go across the railway line at Kuyong. But in discussion with the Vic Roads and then Main Roads Department New South Wales, it quickly became possible to have audible traffic signals on the normal street system. Now, we're talking about what we generally think of as clicking lights, aren't yes. we? Yes. Yes. Victoria, we wanted the clicking light. New South Wales, the main roads department, developed the the tone one. They uh, developed it themselves? Yes, they did. That was completely developed in New South Wales. The clicking one was actually came from um, Sweden, the original concept. And, uh, and then they eventually uh, the standard became the tone one, although both systems are still used. The tone one has advantages to the providers in the fact that they need less maintenance whereas the clicking ones they do ionize um, on the clicking edges and sometimes need more maintenance but they're both very effective they work well and as a matter of fact they've gone worldwide and uh, you can see them now in most parts of the world where we go and that was a real initiative in 1975 from blind citizens australia so from all the things that could have been picked up and run with, why do you think that was that was one of the, the first big campaigns? Well, it was starting to become important that uh, traffic was getting a lot heavier. Blind people were finding it more difficult to cross roads. There were issues there. But I think that one of the things that happened with it is that we, we got help from the people that could do something about it, and that was Vic Roads and the Main Roads Board in New South Wales. So, both of them had engineers who were far seeing enough to think this is a this is a reasonable thing to request and we can do something about it and they did so we had a good ally and so if you've got a good ally you can work better so do you think there was a thinking at the time that this was something that bca could have a win on and if you get an early win um then that gives momentum and it draws in membership I don't know if we consciously thought that, but it was probably the outcome that came from it and uh, probably why we put as much effort into it as we did. 
The other issue that we put forward at that Actually, meeting. before you go on, I'm going to take you back because you you mentioned to me that there was opposition as well to the um, the, the audio signals. Oh, yes, there was quite a lot of opposition to it. Um, <clears throat> a lot of uh, people believe it an intrusion in noise in the street and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, and the fact that a motorbike going past made it answered more noise than a clicking light, but... Uh, there were shopkeepers who objected to it being out the front of their place. But we had another ally, which was a, a, an unknown to us at the time, and that was older people, um, that uh, people who were a bit slower getting across the road. That, uh, they knew with if the clickers were going, they, they felt safe. And um, so we it gradually got that support. And today I doubt if there's anyone opposes it, although there are some funny arrangements. Queensland turns it off at 10 o'clock at night. Um, I don't understand why. I think that they must still believe the blind people should be in bed by ten o'clock or <laughs> whatever. But uh, you know, we we have different rules in different states. Um, to my chagrin. Yeah, change <laughs> though. Change is always slow and difficult, and there's always a, an element of resistance, yeah. no matter what, how sensible it is, or um, or how inoffensive the changes yeah. are. Now. Um, you also you were starting to talk about other major uh, resolutions or campaigns. Well, blind people at that time, and we, I in particular, and others, were very conscious of the fact that we had a very privileged position in the fact that we had a means test free pension. Blind people, we'd got that in 1952, 1955, and uh, it was argued quite heatedly in the community that this was wrong, that blind people should have this and other disabilities didn't. We passed a resolution at that first convention that all people with disabilities should have access to a pension for their disability. And that pension should be free of means tests and free of taxation. We took that resolution... Sorry, to... why, David? Why, why free of means tests? Well... If a person is, do you want me to deal with the part of blind or? <laughs> <laughs> Either. Well, I, we're talking about disability in general now. I know that that wasn't something that ever came into effect. No. Not the not mm. the means no. test free. Mm. But at that time, obviously, that was part of a a a value system that was being incorporated. Um, so, where was that coming from? What what was the thinking behind that? Well. When the blind people, when the Menzies government passed the first pension for blind people that was free of means test, it was in 1952 and it was a part pension. The pension then was about £3.10 a week and they passed £3 of it as being free of means test. That was because most blind people then were working in workshops and they were receiving varying amounts of money as a, a salary from virtually next to nothing in some places up to almost award wages in others. Uh, and so the, the thinking then was that a means test on all other pensions, because there was a pension that was called the invalid pension in those days, that was the one we were under, uh, it had a means test of about one pound a week. So if you were earning more than one pound, or maybe in two pound, you'd lost your pension. And uh, so there was no sense in giving blind people a, a, means to, a pension 
if they were going to take it off you if you went to work and uh, so uh, that's why it was and it was there as a compensation for your disability accepting the fact that uh, there were extra costs involved in being a person with a disability and in our case blindness and uh, therefore we got that pension and our view was that <clears throat> other people had exactly the same issues uh, and uh, we, we were thinking mostly in those days you thought of other disabilities as people in wheelchairs and uh, we were of the opinion that they they should be entitled to go to work and still receive some compensation for their disability to overcome those extra costs. Whereas the the means test on the pension more or less stop, it stopped people from going to work. Um, unless you could be assured that you could get a job that was going to earn uh, average wages, why would you go to work? Why would you go to a, a workshop? Or why would you even try? If you're going to lose that, that pension which gave you health benefits and other things. Um, so to me it was counterproductive and, it, and I still see it as counterproductive. Uh, I, I believe that uh, there, there are ways that people with measurable disabilities should be compensated in some way to help them to overcome some of the costs. So I know we get 50% taxi vouchers, we get travel and all these things, but you still have to have money to pay the other half. And you do indeed. Um, we're going to have time on how things are today mm, and mm, the yep. issues that, mm. that are mm. facing people for the future. So I won't let you go into that too far. <laughs> I'm going to take you back to those uh, formative days and you started to introduce the campaign around the uh, a broad-based disability pension. Yeah, well, we, we, we started that campaign um, we we pushed it, but we weren't getting much support anywhere. We were seen as the elitists, uh, uh, and uh, that we were so lucky that we had that. And uh, there were people in the community. I remember one uh, minister of religion in New South Wales um, um, wrote to the government and uh, said that it was wrong that blind people had this pension and others didn't have it, so it should be taken off us. So it was a negative in the community at the time. But fortunately, uh, we had people in government and who believed in the fact that what they'd done was right. And the public service was virtually against the idea of the men's test free pension to blind people. That was an anathema to them. And we had more issues with public service than we did with politicians over that pension. What do you think their objection was? Well, it was outside the norm. It, it wasn't equal to everybody. Uh, um, I think it was more philosophical than any reality in it. Um, Do you think they saw that it was potentially setting a, uh, a an example that could encourage other people to try and claim the same thing and become a broader issue in respect of, um, well, I don't know if there were unemployment benefits, but um, the broader social security system? I think if it had been available to other people with disabilities, there would have been less opposition to it. Uh, I think the opposition in the public service was really that it was unfair that others weren't getting it, so there, why should you? Uh, I know it's a negative, but that's, how I think, mm. how people felt. And, uh, and was, it, was it genuinely at risk? Do you think that, um, uh, that, that it actually might have been withdrawn? Oh, there were several attempts. Um, the uh, and the Fraser government um, 
had a go at it uh, when um, John Howard was treasurer, and that we were very fortunate at that time. Uh, there was a big telecom strike on at the time, and there was a very few telephones working, and mine worked to Canberra. And Graham Innes, uh, his, he found a public phone box that worked to me, so he could talk to me and I could talk to Canberra, and we ran a campaign and uh, to John Howard and eventually got them to withdraw their... They were going to wipe it out, they withdrew it. We had another campaign at the time of the um, uh, Hawke government. Uh, they were going to change it, uh, they were going to do away with it too, um, and we we had a very good lobbyist in Canberra at the time, and uh, she met uh, Senator Bonkus, and she met him in the um, in the corridors at Parliament House, and she was an advocate for us, and she she told him she saw you, you better better find out what's going on. There's teams of blind people getting on buses coming down here to protest about this. They're going to have a candlelight vigil in the, in the, in the main hall in Parliament House, and. He apparently went to the cabinet, and the story goes that whether it's right or not, that that Hawke made the statement. He said, "Look, I'm sick of these pilots that have been protesting at me all the time, and I don't want a pack of bloody blind people waving their white canes at me too. So they let them keep their pension." <laughs> now, whether the story is true or not, I don't know, but it makes a good one anyway. <laughs> I I can believe it because there is something about looking like you're the government that is picking on blind people. Yeah. That is just not attractive to any government. They just—that's a lot of grief for yeah. what is, what is actually a very what they would maybe perceive mm. as very little gain. Yeah. So yeah, we had several. It, it's been attacks over the years at the stages. Uh, they've even got a, a, a one now. Whereas if you receive compensation for an accident, you can't receive the pension. Well, that's totally in contradiction to a, a means test free and a tax free pension. But that's how the public yeah. service have been able to to bring it in and uh, there are a number of blind people now that are, they've received some compensation, not necessarily a lot of compensation, but that's been worked out at how many years a pension that would be and that's how long they have to wait to get a, a thing. I think it's a backdoor way of beating it, but they've done it and there's nothing much we can do about it and we've been told quite bluntly that if we keep campaigning we'll lose the whole lot, but I don't think that's a reason not to, but um, that's how things are at the moment. David, I'm going to drag you back. <laughs> the The early days of BCA, um, you're a comparatively small number of people. You're primarily Victorian-based simply because mm. that's where your members are at the moment. How do you establish traction as an organisation? How do you... No one's heard of you. Nobody knows really who you are, where you're coming from. And you're trying to get the attention of politicians. You're trying to get the attention of public servants. What's what's the process? How do you do that? Persistence. Um, we uh, we made strong efforts. We deliberately ran convention two conventions in a row up in New South Wales, uh, where we attracted several New South Wales people to come to them, and that sort of broadened the organisation that way. We had uh, people who knew people. Uh, Hugh Jeffries stood for Parliament as a Democrat, and that gave us access to people. Don Chip was my local member. We got uh, access to him. He was a significant politician in the time. Um, other uh, people knew people. Uh, uh, Australia is one of those countries where your next-door neighbour can be your Prime Minister the next time round, and uh, that's we had people like that. 
and uh, that's how we made progress. We debated with public servants. We, um, at the time when the big changes were being made um, to the Disability Act and all those, we, we, we attended conferences, we attended seminars, we, we did all these things. Um, and we did the, all these things as volunteers. None of us were paid, and uh, that's how we developed our organisation. I think in the 80s was when we got much more active with government and got government funding. But before that, it was all uh, what we could do ourselves. Do you think you're riding a wave of social change? Where You were talking before about um, a growing activism around um, women's issues, equal pay, issues around public hospitals, public development of Medicare. Um, a lot of things are happening in the community where we're seeing issues of equal rights, equal participation, no longer locking people away. And is that what is getting people to answer the telephone? Is that what's, what is getting people to talk to you? Yes, and I think that's where we created a number of our friends from um, because we supported them and they supported us in a loose arrangement. Uh, we had all those uh, issues to deal with. Uh, we, we were strong advocates for women, you know, and there were strong advocates in the community for women, women's rights and uh, the equality of women, um, their place in the in the whole system of things that stopped being just seen as uh, being there to raise the kids, uh, that they, they were equal contributors to the community. We were strong advocates for that. Um, we, I was, and we had good, strong women in our organisation, like the late Jane Lederman, uh, who was a very strong advocate on behalf of women, and uh, particularly blind women. Uh, and a number of others, you know. So we were part of a growing issue of change in the community. The Our big change was with government and with the agencies. And I have to say that when we established Blind Citizens Australia, I was a board member at RBIB. So, you know, I, I had access there to information and uh, knowledge of what was going on at the agency level, Australia-wide, through that position, and I was able to use that. It was not confidential, so it was quite accessible for me to use it. Um, I, and uh, so we worked on in that way. I understand from um, things you've said that rather than that seem, being seen as a conflict, that actually the RVIB was expressing some support for the sorts of issues that you were starting to run on. They were. Uh, I had a good friend in Ted Peterson who was the executive director of RVIB. Um, uh, he was restrained in what he could do by the policies of the organisation, but he was always open-minded enough to, to hear the other point of view. Um, I know he had conflicts with other groups and that sort of thing at times, but I was always able to talk to him, whether we were agreed or did, didn't agree, didn't matter, we could talk about it. And uh, he, he made it possible for me to do things which meant that I didn't have to have a conflict of interest. It was often thrown up at me, oh, well, of course, that's the NFBC's view, which the old BCA, um, uh, that, that's what they I said, yeah, but it also happens to be mine. 
So you, know. you mean it's, it's being thrown up on the board oh, yes. back at you oh, yeah. to say, oh, you're just running the yeah. the views of a mm. of a, a special interest organisation. Yes, that's right. I mean, because people would use any argument they could to win their case. I had a very good friend in my late Laurie McCready on the board. He 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 was very supportive. He was totally blind, of course, Laurie, and uh, we won a lot of issues because of the respect that he was held in. Um, uh, in my early days there, I wasn't held into any respect at all because <laughs> I'd defeated one of the Melbourne club members and that's not the way she get on the boards. No, no, that doesn't help. But does it, it did help. We got there. And uh, and then, of course, I was uh, on that board when we set up BCA. And uh, so, you know, the RBIB had a better relation with BCA than any other agency did, I think mainly because of that initial contact that I had when I was on that board. Do you think Not that, that we always agreed with them? No. <laughs> Do you think that the board had a sense that what would have been their previous role as really being the voice of blind people without necessarily having that representation, that they were starting to lose that, that that was going over to the people who were directly affected? At that time, the there was a big change on the RVIB board. The the guy who'd been president for, oh, I reckon, 10, 15, 20 years, he uh, he went off the board, he became very ill. Uh, I'd say they probably lost uh, three or four of the older, more established type um, agency he- um, board members, and new ones came on, so therefore we were able to influence them earlier than, than we could the others because they were entrenched. Old Doc Bennett, he, as far as he was concerned, you were there to be looked after by the RBIB, not to tell the RBIB what they want. And um, so uh, there was change there. There was change everywhere, and we were right in the middle of it. You're also, you're the young Turks, you're technologically savvy. You're starting to make use of the media that's available to you. Can you tell us about that? The media was never really that good to us. Uh, we, we we used talkback radio a bit. Um, one of the issues that we fought at the time was um, the right of uh, the blackout ban on electronic media before an election. And Hugh Jeffries ran that campaign, and he was a very strong advocate for that. What's the issue, David? Well, at that time, they um, you couldn't have any more radio broadcasts. 48 hours before an election what was going on you know it was a total blackout and um, that's a federal election and uh, we had uh, that and I'm trying to think of his name um, so that's uh, denying political information to yeah, blind people because yes, they right. don't have access to the newspapers that's correct and uh, Hugh Jeffries um, made a contact with uh, then one of the radio talkback hosts Darren Hinch and Darren became a very strong advocate for us on that issue that against the blackout ban and eventually he and BCA and other organisations had that overturned. Another issue um, Hugh was involved in again was um, jury service. Uh, blind people were denied the right to serve on a jury. So Hugh objected to this and he got called up to the jury and because he got in the box and had to answer all the questions. and. He explained very clearly to the judge that he as a blind person was quite capable of uh, making a decision and all the rest of it, and the judge agreed with him, but he didn't change the rules. <laughs> what do you think the... What was the thinking behind that ban? 
Well, they just thought that blind people and deaf people weren't capable. Blind people couldn't see the reaction of the witnesses and the deaf people couldn't hear it, so therefore they shouldn't be on a jury. Uh, these are views that come back from centuries ago, I suppose, and um, they just haven't been changed. And uh, I don't think blind people can go on a jury even today. Going back to the media, there's also the local media. That's the, the development of radio specifically for the interests of blind people. What's happening there? Well, then, of course, we had the, um, the first one was a, a, a community radio station called Triple Z. We had a program on that for a half an hour a week. Um, John Mason and um, Stephen Jolly and a few people like that <coughs> ran that program. We used that. Uh, it was called a blind affair, uh, which <laughs> I shudder to think now, but that's what we called it. Uh, and then there were very strong advocates for radio for the print handicapped, and BCA became very much involved in that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it was an item on uh, uh, all our uh, conventions, probably for about twenty years, I would think. And uh, eventually. It now is radio for the print handicapped is, is an established uh, service and BCA people like Stephen Jolly in particular were really forerunners and leaders in that campaign. Why was, why was a specific radio station important? Well, the thing was that <clears throat> this is before computers, so people who had um, access to newspapers was non-existent. Unless you had somebody who could read to you what was in the newspaper, you didn't know what was there. So Radio for the Print Handicap was a reading service. Its idea was to read the newspapers of the day, the weeklies and all those issues. So it was an alternative to print and using radio to do it. And uh, that's why that was such a strong um, policy of BCA. Uh, it still is, and uh, it's the same as uh, we've been strong advocates for uh, telephone services, uh, reading services where you could have reading a newspaper over the telephone because some people couldn't get to the radio. Uh, it wasn't in their area. And now we have it through the libraries and computers that you can access newspapers. And all of that goes back to the initial radio pro um, advocacy for radio programs. Was that radio station managed by an agency? Not originally. It was set up by a group of um, people. Um, there were people from both agencies on the board of it, from RVIB and the Old Association for the Blind. The, Gordon Merry was one of the very strong advocates for it from the Association for the Blind, but the main drivers of it were people like Stephen Jolly, John Mason, Neville Kerr, John Simpson, those people were all very strong advocates and they were the workers, they did the programs, they uh, did the monitoring, they did the all the technical side of it. Um, and uh, we originally housed it in Donald Street in um, the Villa Maria Hostel, we've got, we've got a, uh, a little shed out the back there and operated out of there and then eventually the Association for the Blind took it over and now it is called Vision Australia Radio and I think they've got about five or six stations throughout Victoria. They're in New South Wales and Western Australia. Uh, it's very big now. From little things, big things grow. Uh, yeah. Those, obviously the, the community program on Triple Z, that had a political component. <laughs> did the, um, did the, did the radio for print handicap, did that also offer a, a political forum? 
Oh yes, um, we had to get a lot of support from government for it and um, we did get that. Um, uh, Stephen Jolly was a very strong advocate on that one. And uh, But uh, you think back to Triple Z, let me tell you that uh, if you think that things were political, you ought to have been to some of those meetings when uh, they had every disparate group you could think of. If you were opposed to something, you wanted to be on the radio. If you were an ethnic group, you wanted to be on the radio. And uh, whenever we had a public meeting and uh, electing the board to who decided how, many, how much time you got, they were free-for-alls that they never seen the like of, you know. There was real anger and hurt and fighting in there. We, we got half an hour a week, and we had to fight every, virtually every meeting to hold that time. Is that right? And I think we eventually lost it, and um, but we got RPH up pretty soon after that. And um, So there was the political role in terms of getting support and funding. Yeah. But also I was meaning in terms of promoting campaigns. Was it a vehicle where... BCA could have a voice and could promote to other people who are blind what the what the issues are, what the campaigns are, and I suppose progress. Probably was used that way, yes. Um, it was more aimed at the general public than it was to other blind people. It was more telling the general public what we were about and accept uh, the fact that, uh, you know, that most of the blind people at that time were, um, and still are, were elderly people. And uh, maybe it was their families who heard about it and told them, or they might have heard it themselves. It wasn't that well known, Triple Z, at the time. It was, it was seen as pretty radical because you know half the program. David, it was language. radical. Yeah. I think every communist <laughs> interest group in Australia had a had a program on Triple Z. Well, I think Three CR is probably the uh, the genesis of uh, the Triple Z was the genesis of that and uh, but uh, so you know it, uh, it's a very strong community system um, but that's how it was mm. at the time. So we've got we've had two conventions we've primarily got members from Victoria and New South Wales we have self-interest in other states um, that would be resisting the the introduction of a broad-based and open blindness organisation. What what took it to the next level? How did it get from uh, the involvement of a couple of states into all states? We um, we, we worked very hard at that. Uh, we uh, invited people to come to our meetings. We went and talked to people. Um, I remember Dolly Lee from South Australia was the head of the Welfare Association over there, which was a blindness organisation uh, run by blind people. Um, she told us that uh, she attended a couple of our meetings and we said we wanted to go to South Australia and she said, wait till you're asked. Eventually we were asked and uh, we had a very we had a convention. That's how we used to do it. The moment we got a leg in, we'd run a convention in that state. And uh, we were in one in South Australia and uh, a number of South Australians who had been told how bad we were and terrible people we were came along to have a look for themselves and decided we weren't that bad and joined up with us. So then we got a South Australian branch. The same thing happened in Queensland. It took a bit longer to get into Western Australia, but eventually we did. And uh, it's, it, it was a gradual movement. Uh, there was a genuine belief, I believe, in the, in the blindness community that there was a need for what BCA was. It's just a matter of whether they could stomach the fact that it came from Victoria. And uh, that, that was an issue, and, uh, and I still see it as an issue today. I, I, 
I'm really of the opinion that we'd be better off if we moved the office out of Victoria. Um, and uh, Victorians wouldn't be better off, but I'm, I'm sure the, the, the organisation would because they've still got that idea that the, the national office is really Victoria. It's all about Victoria, and uh, you won't change those perceptions. They're, they're perceptions that are held about everything in this country. That's what the dividing of the states does to us, and it's in our thinking. And uh, that's how we are. And uh, we went around to each of those states. We talked to people. We showed them that we were reasonable people. I had a reasonable reputation, mainly through blind cricket and probably other activities that I was involved in. So, um, and we got around. We talked to people, um, and uh, that's how we did it. And uh, today, I still think it's the best method uh, that you you get to know people, get to know you. Canberra was another example where we. We went up there, we got some good advocates for us up there and um, Joe Ashman and people like that. So, you know, there's a, a lot of things that have been done on a personal basis in Blind Citizens Australia and I still see it as a, an organisation of people that really are committed to what they're about and that's why it's so strong and uh, that's why we've succeeded as far as we have. Getting up into... Northern Territory and getting across to the West. I mean, as you explained, you're you're not being funded for this. Any trip is your own time and your own money. The that can't have been easy getting getting there and um, getting people on board. Uh, it wasn't easy, and um, it was expensive to a number of us. And um, I think some of our families probably suffered because of it. And uh, uh, I know that uh, we used to buy our own tickets to go interstate. We always travel by train those days because um, we we used to be able to take a guide free on the train, so that helped. But, uh, other than that, that's how we did it. We paid our own accommodation bills and uh, all those things. It wasn't until probably the 80s before some of those costs started to be remunerated. You mentioned family. Let's talk about yours. Jess is at home. She's got the kids. There's a That's a lot of work. It's demanding. The was she behind you on this? Did she share those values and see that you were actually working for the greater good? I think so. Um, she's never said anything different, so I assume that. Uh, my kids have always been strong supporters for me in that regard. Uh, I know they must have uh, missed out on things at times, but um, there were other times we made that up. And uh, as a family, we're a strong unit, and uh, we still are. So, uh, yes, the family was behind it. Uh, I think they knew that uh, I wasn't getting anything out of this that I I didn't have already. I mean, I had my own business. I had uh, made my own way in life. I had my own interests as well as BCA. But uh, it was something we did, and you didn't think anything about it. You just did it. it. It was a job that needed to be done, so you did it. One of those... Uh, initial I- issues that you raised with me is about library services. Um, I was wondering, can you st- at least introduce that issue for us today? Library services was a hot issue in its time. Um, we had these, um, again I come back to the state agencies that uh, they uh, had their own library service and um, they were very, uh, very uh, I'd say naughty in the fact that they didn't really work together that well. We established an organisation called the Round Table for people with 
print disability. And that's what the name eventually ended up at. And uh, out of that, we, we tried to get some standards. The National Library became involved in it. BCA was quite very strongly involved. I was president of it for a number of years. Although it was a separate organisation, it wasn't a subcommittee of the BCA. No, no, no. It was a separate organisation which we influenced. Um, and we had these discussions with the National Library about having a national archive of um, Braille material for because we had little bits here and little bits all over the country, different standards. Uh, we took the Braille Library into that, uh, the National Library into that, and I believe BCA was the main advocate in that area. And uh, although I don't think the National Library ever took it seriously, they, they housed it, but they, they I don't know if they ever did catalogue it. Uh, I got out of it in that time. But uh, there were issues there. But the main thing we did do is that the production of materials for people with disabilities was a hot issue, and we got the government to um, to agree to fund it under the Disability Services Act. Well, then, of course, we had each of the states fighting for who was going to get the lion's share of it because each of them were doing... The lion's own. share of the money. Yeah, because yep. each of them were doing their own production. And uh, so what I put forward a proposal, and it was my proposal, that 1% of the monies that they received for the production of material for people with print disabilities was to go to the round table so they could use that as the advocate's money. And I would consider one of my greatest achievements was convincing the Royal Blind Society in New South Wales to agree to that. I got the support out of Victoria through the RBIB and uh, at that time the Braille Library as well because it was a separate body uh, Joan Smart Nielsen was a supporter of that and uh, so we got New South Wales on board and that actually then gave the round table some teeth because it had some money we could afford to employ someone to do work for us to do research and to work with the National, Li National Library to get it but then the big issue became the production of uh, voice material and it was whether it can be on two track or four track and the government separate to the National Library the Department of Human Services it is now um, was of the opinion it should be two track Victoria and New South Wales well RBIB and the Royal Blind Society of New South Wales were both four track and the Braille Library was two-track. <laughs> That's crazy. The um, other organisations were two-track. And, you know, and the so government was trying it to... It means you're needing two pieces of equipment well, to be able to access this material. Well, yeah, and, well, no, the four-track machine would play both systems. But the advantage of the four-track machine was that it played it at half speed and you've got six hours on a, on a tape whereas on a two-track machine you got one hour and 40 minutes so each tape you had one had one hour 40 minutes on the other one had six hours material oh. so if you're carrying a, a book around or something it, you could have a, a little patch that had three cassettes in it or you had another one where you had boxes of stuff and uh, <coughs> 
So the whole thing came to a head at, um, at a meeting at a convention in Canberra in Sydney, when the uh, person from the um, Department of Human Services um, came along and was virtually telling us that we had to have two track, we had to support two track BCA, and uh, so I was given the the job to argue the case against him. So I I got the book Twelve Stories. <laughs> War and Peace, <laughs> and I, I can't remember the numbers now, but it was a stack of cassettes. It would have been 18 inches high, as against two little booklets. Yeah, oh. it's a huge difference. And uh, and and I, I, I got a bit overboard, I suppose. I attacked the the person from the department rather than the department and I told him that he didn't have the right to come and tell us what we had to do. I mean we didn't tell him that he had to read in, in the newspapers in Greek. He could read in whatever what he wanted, Greek, English, whatever he wanted. And it, as a matter of interest the lady who was there who was the commissioner for women in the government uh, later became a high rank on Australia, I better not name her. Um, she actually attacked me on the grounds that I was rude to this public servant. <laughs> and I told her quite bluntly that if she didn't stand up for women the way we stood up for our rights, she wasn't doing her job. Oh, well done. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I had a friend there. Um, no. But we didn't convince the government, but eventually now, of course, it's all changed because we've gone to digital and uh, everything's changed. Yeah, of course. David, it... I'm going to stop you there. You've you've foreshadowed the Disability Services Act. Mm, we're, yeah. we're starting to move into a period of dramatic change in the way that services are offered to people who are blind. Also, the scope of those services, even the ideology behind the provision of service is about to change. So I think that makes this the right time to stop and we'll pick up with those uh, new developments when we come back to our sixth episode. Mm -hmm.